0: Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful, yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and Advanced
0: Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. We are talking today about malt certificates of analyses. That's right. And well, we're going to try to talk about it. We've got a pretty, pretty robust outline. Um, But I find for me, I find like talking about COAs is the most helpful to me when I like I will print out a COA from a website and go through and write like, this is what this means. This is why this would be important. So Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've we just recorded another episode and then we were shit talking for a few minutes in between. So I just kind of dove. Right in. But I'm sure I will say it again. I think that's the best way. It's kind of like reading a water report. Yes. And we're talking about like we can tell you what everything means, but really just finding a COA, a certificate of analysis and going through it and writing down like, here's what this means. Here's the parameters for this. That's Mm -hmm. what I find to be the most helpful. And I, I did the same thing with my water report when I lived in Charlotte, was I just made a copy and was like, okay. Calcium should be in this range. And this, this is why it matters. And your needs
1: of a COA will change depending on what type of brewer you are. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing home brewing, you, you might not care about as much as that COA has to offer versus if you are working at Coors making the same beer all the time. Yes. paying attention to that malt Is going to be very important because this is a food product right we're growing people we farmers are growing this not it doesn't come out the same every time it's like hops you have different batches have different alpha acid contents and you have to take all that stuff into consideration and i think a lot of people don't i think a lot of people get set and forget and they're like this is the recipe this is the malt i'm getting and unless you're really working with your maltster, you could have changes that you don't
0: know why I know we spoke about this in the, I think, in our first episode we did on barley and malt, that if you're a very, very large maltster, so if you're someone like RAR or Great Western or Malt Europe, what you're able to do is basically your COA can kind of always stay the same because you're blending. You have enough scale that you can blend all of these different um batches not like not varieties but um it's going to be single variety but different lots from different places to make it a you know just a consistent product whereas if you're using something from a craft malzer yeah chances are you're going to want to see that coa each time just because they're they're doing like single batch a lot yes. of times not all of them but a lot of times they're doing single batch and that may shift your you know your coa information a little bit although they do try because uh, you know understanding obviously brewers most brewers want to be making a consistent product yeah. it will still be within the specifications where it should be uh, but someplace like rar two row or breeze can take several different lots or even you know like uh, maybe this didn't get killed enough, and this got killed too much, and so then you can blend them together. And that's why some, you know, with some manufacturers, you can even open your bag and look, and see that there's different looking stuff in there, and yeah. that's because they've blended it together to achieve that final product. And there's there's not no there's, there's not a right that. way or a wrong yeah, way, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, the bigger the malt house, the more of a consistency you will have. And typically changes will come from different crop years.
0: Right. Um, Right. So that would be
1: more of a, you're right. You can kind of, I I hate that term set and forget, but you can trust it a little bit more to not change versus a single batch in a malt house, your your, your small malt house. And if you're not sure, just ask them. They'll tell you like, they want to be on top of it too. Like
0: the small ones. Right. And a good maltster should communicate that to you anyway. Yeah, And should make sure that you understand how to use their malt, which is also, I know we talked about this as well, why you can't treat craft malt like it's commodity malt, because it's not. You can't treat the beer from Pilot. It's not going to taste the same as Budweiser, because it's not the same thing. It's in the same family, but it's not the same thing. And you need to have different expectations, and you really need to understand how to work with craft malt, because you can't, like, if you only get raw two-row, you really can set it and forget it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like we talked about just every once in a while, maybe recalibrate your mill or, or something like that. But with craft malt, you need to be a little more mindful of that. And that's where that certificate of analysis comes in. So we just jumped right into kind of pontificating on that, but a a certificate of analysis, or you'll also hear us call it a COA. Yeah. uh, That is going to serve two purposes for, really for the brewer, right? So the the maltster is making the certificate of analysis for the brewer to see, and what they're going to see is the COA is going to document the production in the malt house, and then it's also going to predict the ultimate performance in the brew house. So there's a few different ways to look at a certificate of analysis And if you're a Brewers Association member, I highly, highly recommend in uh, April of 2020, when they did CBC online, they had um, two gentlemen from, I think from Brees, who talked about like, here's a, here are different ways that you can look at your COA. And they talked about it in terms of buckets, like you can put this information kind Mm -hmm. of into buckets. And Joe um, Hertrick had worked for Anheuser-Busch for several years and he's now a malt consultant or barley and malt consultant. And he consolidates the certificate of analysis into five basic categories. So looking at all of that information you have, you're going to be looking at carbohydrate modification, protein modification, carbohydrate enzymes, carbohydrate extract and color slash flavor. So with maltsters, what they can control when they're malting is going to be the moisture content of that barley, the temperature, the airflow, and the time. So those are going to be the different levers that a maltster has with different barley varieties or depending on what they want the finished goal to be. That's how they're going to be able to adjust what that final malt product looks like when it goes to the brew house. So when we're talking about Carbohydrate modification, we've talked about this before, about most malt today is going to be well-modified. Methods like mashing, turbine mashing, or sorry, decoction mashing, turbine mashing, those came about because the barley and the malt was not well-modified. So it was, how do we work? Again, how do we work with what we have?
1: And modification, just to recap, is the breakdown of the cell wall structures, the, the chemical breakdown, so, and protein matrix and this is in order to give access to the starch reserves in the grain mm-hmm. right um, that are held within the endosperm so that's what we are talking about we're mod- getting the malt ready for brewers
0: right yes exactly that's an excellent way to put it and that uh, modification is going to like rachel said it's going to describe the extent the carbohydrate levels of barley have been broken down so one of the most important ones is going to be that beta glucan level and this was something when, and I know, Rachel, you've been a judge in the Malt Cup that's put on by the Craft Monsters Guild. I was one of the people who developed the Malt Cup from conception into, into I reality. I know that. Yes, I did that when I, I was... I didn't know that. You were one of the OGs. I was one of the five, yes, <laughs> one of the original five who discussed how do we make a, a malt competition similar to beer competitions. And one of the first things we discussed was looking at a COA or looking if a, if a malt goes through this analysis in in lab and hopefully we'll have Hannah from the Montana State University Barley and Malt Lab on as a guest uh, soon. But when you know what are the things that a brewer is going to automatically kick out and say, no, this is not I can't use this. And the two first parameters we set up were beta glucan level and also color. So if you're, you know, if you want a Pilsner malt and I get something that's like a five, you know, five EBC or five Leva bond, um, not EBC, five Levabond, then that's that's not a Pilsner malt, right? Yeah. So it's too dark. All of the entrants would send in their, their entries to the lab. And the first thing it would do would be to go through this quality certificate of analysis uh process and then the ones that had really high beta-glucan levels or the color wasn't correct those were kind of automatically be kicked out because those are the things that like you. you can work with a lot of different things we've talked about yeah. that in our in our um, other episode on mashing and milling you you can work with it as a brewer like you've got some levers at your disposal but if your beta-glucan levels are too high you you've got a really gummy Mm -hmm. product that's going to be hard to work with is going to slow down your brew day. And just realistically speaking, a brewer's not going to make a lot, likely not going to make a lot of exceptions for a really gummy mash. Like they'll just use another malt, right? There's there's other malt available. So our beta-glucans are gums that are comprised of long-chain sugars, these are not broken down by mashing enzymes, so that's why if you have a really high beta glucan level in your in your malt, that's going to stay there. You you can't kind of get yeah. it, you know, get get away from it. So, and they'll cause problems in the water yes. and
1: filtration. Right, um,
0: and this is also the beta glucan level is why when you're brewing with something like oats or wheat, um, that a lot of times you're going to and rye you're going to use uh, rice hulls because you're trying to kind of break up some of this gumminess. So that's one of the reasons you would use that. With beta-glucans, low levels indicate that there's been good modification because that endosperm has been modified. So like Rachel said, those cell walls have been broken down, and a lot of that gumminess has, is, is done, right? Those beta-glucans have been broken down. And like we said, the high beta-glucan levels are going to cause filtration problems both in your Lauderton, in your finished beer. And that also can add like the viscosity. It can add haze to to your beer. Um, so you want on, a, if you're looking at a certificate of analysis, you're looking for beta-glucan levels that are below 150 ppm.
1: Yeah, I think a typical analysis, I have in my notes, 100 and 120. Yes. You should see.
0: Yes, that's perfect.
1: So but barley comes with a high level of beta-glucan, like around 1,800 milligrams per liter. So the molster's doing a lot of work to drop that level down,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they can potentially not drop it down enough. So it's important to under, for them to understand where that fine line is.
0: Right. And some barley factors, uh, like Rachel just said, the that can affect the beta-glucan levels if you have a bad crop year. Um, You can have pre-germination that will occur occur when the barley absorbs too much water and it effectively drowns. And so we talked about in our malting episode that you've got your germination, or sorry, your steep, your germination and your kilning. So what happens when it's really, really wet is that it's basically a steep, right? It's a steep happening in the field. And so you're going to have that pre-sprout, the pre-germination that's going to happen um, so when you're trying to harvest that, like that that barley is already drowned, right? We and mm-hmm. with malting, that's very much a controlled process of steeping. It is like you don't want to drown it; you just want to trick it into thinking that it's going to grow. Um, but when there's too much water, just like think about overwatering your plants, right? Like too much water is is a bad thing. And that happened in um, I think it was 2018 was like a really wet year for a lot of, especially a lot of craft maltsters um, so it was a really, really tough 2018-2019 was a really tough year for growers and craft maltsters, like small scale. Uh, because again, if you're really, really large scale, you know, you can, is if you have a bad crop year, it's not as devastating or catastrophic as it can be for a craft maltster who's, you know, who has like maybe three yeah. fields as opposed to like 3000 fields. And um, if you have like on the other side, if you have hot, dry growing conditions, you're going to get a really high protein crop that's going to be really difficult to modify that. So that high protein, you're going to still end up with a lot of beta glucans in that. Yeah. So it's you know, it's it's it sounds like it's like this very complicated balance. It's it is and it's not, you know, fundamentally, beer is an agricultural product, so it depends on agriculture. And those those are all things that just like brewing that growers will balance out of, OK, what, you know, again, like these are the levers we have at our disposal. Uh, so then the next thing we have is for when we're looking at a, a certificate of analysis for copper, carbohydrate modification is the friability and friability is how easy it is to crumble when pressure is applied and that's usually going to be uh reported for base malts. And we actually had a a conversation about this a few weeks ago, Rachel, when we were talking about like certificates of analyses, and you you had sent me, I think like a caramel malt COA, and it really didn't have that much information on it. And it was like, yeah, because it's a it's a caramel malt. So you're not using it for the friability. You're not using it for the for those carbohydrates. Um you know like that's it's if you look at something like a, a coa for a base malt a coa for a caramel malt and a coa for a roasted malt there there's just very like abbreviated information for yeah. the other two because friability things like that are going to be what you need to know for your carbohydrate modification for your base malt yeah exactly so with friability this is going to relate to the overall modification level of the malt and this is measured using a friabilimeter. Which I've gotten to run a fry a millimeter fry um I just millimeter. like that word yeah I'm like <laughs> fry a millimeter fry a um fry a bill-a-meter. I've gotten to run one before and like it's it's pretty fun I mean it's you put fifty grams of malt uh, and you just run it for eight minutes uh, fry a fry millimeter is looks a lot like a hammer mill does um, so it's not little tiny hammers. <laughs> <laughs> But um, what that's going to do is you let that run for eight minutes, and then the malt that is very crushable, this modified, that drops down through the bottom of the billabiner into billabiner into a little container, uh, and that's going to be discarded. And then this is where the sieve comes in that we talked about last time. You have a set of sieves and the uncrushed content so after eight minutes whatever's left that didn't uh, that didn't easily break down when it was crumbled uh, those are going to be emptied into a 564 slotted screen and then you're going to shake it uh, to separate the large unmodified pieces from the smaller more modified pieces the large pieces so the ones that uh, did not go through that slotted screen those are called all glassy and the all glassy portion if it's and it's for me it's a little bit of a misnomer because we also talk about like caramel malt being glassy on the Mm -hmm. inside but you have all glassy and your the this portion that's left over after going through the fryabilimeter for eight minutes is going to have um, higher beta glucan lower enzymes lower soluble protein because it hasn't been modified so this is what we're doing here is checking the protein or the carbohydrate modification. And the if you also have a high all glassy number, that means that your germination was poor or you had some sort of improper steeping. Um, so again, like you don't, your goal with the friabilometer is to not have a lot of big pieces left over because that means that your malt's not very well modified. And then the smaller pieces, the ones that fall through that 564 sieve, screen those are going to be called half glassy Uh, and that half glassy portion is might is going to be you know like slightly elevated beta-glucan levels as well as slightly lower enzymes and soluble protein again because we've gotten rid of all of that like i said it'd be you know with the fry bill all the stuff that's really easily crushable that's already fallen through and now we're just seeing like okay we've got this proportion of these left that aren't well modified and then you're breaking those down farther to all glassy or half glassy to figure out what that proportion is for your friability. And with um, friability, there's a couple of different ways you can measure it. But if you have a really low value, so less than 80% friability, that means that your malt has been under modified. Uh, and this is where, in one of the previous episodes, I talked about having that really high protein malt. Uh, that the maltster was just like, I'm not selling this, but you can have it to play with it. That's where this comes in. So that had a very low friability. So I did like a step mash on that Mm -hmm. and did in particular a beta-glucan rest because I knew it was high in beta-glucan. And I wanted those, you know, to use those enzymes to break it down a little bit more. So a higher value for your friability is going to indicate complete or higher modifications. Like your best case scenario when you're looking at friability is like after eight minutes you open it up and nothing's there because it's totally friable and everything fell through um and you modified it just right that doesn't happen i mean that's you know that's that's not a realistic thing but as again as our protein increases our friability decreases because the barley wasn't well modified um and i think i've we've already mentioned this but like malting factors that affect friability is you you had an improper steep schedule, so you either uh, let your barley steep for too long or not long enough. And you also and or you may have had poor germination. So that's that's friability. That's again, that's one of our carbohydrate modifications um, that we're looking at when we're looking at a COA. Yeah, and I think from all
1: that, you're as a brewer, your takeaway is around 80% is kind of your goal mm-hmm. of what you want to see.
0: Right. And it can be, it's it's usually higher it's, than that. Friability yeah. will usually be like in the low 90s for a really yeah. well-modified malt. So uh, if it's lower than 80, you should be
1: concerned and think about what you want to do.
0: Right. Right. And if it's lower than 80, unless you're specifically looking for an under-modified malt, which some people do if you're doing like a turban mash or wild fermentation um you might want an undermodified malt so that's you know i know there are some maltsters who will sell undermodified malt for spontaneous fermentation reasons but generally speaking you're not going to find a a malt product on the market with really low friability that mm-hmm. isn't like yeah. that on purpose
1: yeah 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 exactly so th- yeah that's a good point like you should be worried, but it's not the normal. You're not gonna yeah, you're not going, yeah. going to run
0: into it, right? Yeah. Um and so then the next thing we have that we would be concerned about in terms of carbohydrate modification is viscosity. So we've already talked about a, a little bit about the viscosity, but wart viscosity is directly related to lottery performance and is correlated with beta glucan levels. So if you have um viscosity when we're talking about that that's going to on your certificate of analysis that's going to be measuring your beta glucans your pentasans and your protein combined uh, and that's going to tell you like how kind of how viscous it is how thick yeah. is. those going are to like be. long chains high yes. molecular weight sugars molecules right um right so like high wort viscosity is going to have a long runoff time uh and again we talked about this in uh when we were talking About the beta glucans, but if you have high wort viscosity, that indicates that you have poor endosperm modification.
1: And it could eventually or it could potentially cause haze problems as well. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, exactly. And viscosity is not the best measure of malt performance in the brew house. So, you know, now we've gotten, we've talked about beta glucans. We've talked about friability we're going to talk about the fine course difference in a moment viscosity is something that's reported on a certificate anal- of analysis but it's not something that you have to yeah you've got I think, other you've got better indicators it's kind of like yes. that that's kind of like the summary of a lot of different information that you have on your and, coa and
1: it would definitely be affected by your beta glucan levels um like well like you said it's obviously measures beta glucan but you know typical Analysis is going to be low, like 1.6. So from my notes that, you know, I was born knowing.
0: (laughs) Right. And those are in, those are, that is measured in degree or units centipoise. So that's the other thing about successive analysis that I think we've, we talked about a little bit in the, um, in our initial episode on barley and malt that you know, like there's Levabond. And <laughs> they, there's yes. just like the, the, especially when it comes to certificates of analysis, there's some special measurements that are only used on that and they're not used anywhere else. So then the last factor for carbohydrate modification we're going to look at is the fine course difference. And that's fine slash coarse difference. Yes. So the fine coarse difference is determined by comparing extract yields when warts are made from malt that is both finely ground and coarsely ground. So when we're talking about finely ground, that's going to be like a powder, right? You've made a mm-hmm. flour out of it, and a coarse grind is going to be like you used a like a blade coffee mill kind of thing. Yeah, like kind of like what, like what you would regular expect.
1: Yeah, if you're used to milling malt, right? Coarse is like um, for mash filter. Basically, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, fine grind is like for a mash filter, like right. you would fine grind your malt if you were using like a mash filter, which is right. And that's
0: yeah, that's where you, you would use a hammer out. mill. Yeah, use the hammer mill to get the fine grind, and yeah, and you're basically just making flour.
1: Yes, exactly. It. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So,
0: poorly modified malt doesn't release extract easily, so it will have a higher fine coarse difference than well modified malts will. So the fine grind difference is not used to predict extract yields in the brew house just because there's other you have other factors going on in your brewing so you have different milling characteristics you have different malt and water ratios depending on what you're brewing uh, but it is important to be aware that if you have a higher of uh, fine course difference then you're likely dealing with poorly modified malt but at this point by the time you get to the fine course difference, You've already looked at your beta glucans and you know so you've already and you've looked at your friability so you already have a pretty good idea. Um, this is just kind of more information kind of a hat on a hat like mm-hmm. this is uh, this, you're not working potentially with the best modified malt
1: yeah and a typical range would be like 0.5 to 1.5 percent difference mm-hmm. A lot of times sometimes malt analysis will give you the fine grind percentage and the coarse grind percentage. But really what you want to be looking at, depending how much you want to get into your mole analysis, but really is that difference that
0: matters. Right. Yes. That's a really important point. So then the next one we're going to look at, our next bucket is the protein modification. And protein modification, we're going to be looking at our soluble to total protein ratio. We're going to look at our free amino nitrogen and we're going to look at our pH. Exactly so with the the soluble and again this is known as the st ratio so it's s over t um, also known as the kolbach index and rachel if you're looking at my notes right now you can see i have in all caps in bold who is kolbach because i've been able to find (laughs) um, everything else and if if somebody wants to go on uh, a detective hunt um kolbach the nobody really knows why it's called the kolbach index and so that's why it's like who but it came from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we have it somewhere? I,
1: I, I, it's when I read read that, I was like, yeah, that's one of those things I remember hearing a long time ago in some book, but I don't know why or who or anything yeah. about
0: it. Yeah. So, and they're like, you can find literature out there that says we don't know what Kolbach index means. We don't know who Kolbach is. Uh, yeah. But your S to T ratio is going to give you a very strong measure of your malt modification, and you want a higher S to T ratio.
1: What it means is like as barley is modified into malt, the proteins in the grain are broken down into like smaller fractions, which are easily soluble. So it's just like a ratio of how much of those are soluble versus the total amount of proteins. Like basically the higher the ratio, the greater level of modification of the malt in theory. Um, there are differences in, in like the S to T values between like barley varieties for fully modified malt. So kind of depends. It doesn't really tell you the whole story because it depends on the maltzer
0: right. Right, exactly. And like we talked earlier, you know, strong growing conditions, or I'm sorry, hot, dry growing conditions will create higher protein. Uh, So that's going to give you a higher total protein value. If, you know, again, if you had a really dry crop year, and it was, you know, super hot, and that's something that's happened like, in the American Southeast before, where there's not enough rain, and it's really, really hot and dry. So you have really high protein, that was actually one of the first um one of like the the biggest hurdles growing barley in non-traditional barley growing areas was that the protein levels were so high yeah and again you know brewers aren't used to working with really high protein levels so
1: that has since
0: changed but um also if you're doing um excessive nitrogen fertilization that's going to create higher protein as well um so our the total protein will be reduced slightly during malting by the removal of the rootlets post kiln. So that is something that we didn't talk about. Um, when kilning is finished, you know, you still kind of have all of those, like it, the, the malt still needs to be cleaned because you need to get all those rootlets and everything cleaned off of it. And if you ever have the chance to be in kind of an old, like uh, I've seen it more in craft maltster um, in those malt houses, and I forgot the specific name of the equipment, but it is very like Rube Goldberg looking like it's just this very old piece of machinery that looks like <laughs> it's cool to look at but it looks like you would need a crank to get it started yeah. <laughs> you know and <laughs> like it's like like that's what this machine looks like uh so the higher your s to t ratio the greater your level of modification is going to be and as your total protein increases, and again, like we've talked about this already in here, um, as your total protein increases, your SAT ratio decreases, which means you're going to have lower extract, it means you're going to have higher gravity, and it's also going to be more foam positive, if you go back to our foam episode, um, because you're going to have more proteins in leftover in your finished beer. So low protein can be an issue because there's going to be insufficient enzymatic activity to modify the kernel and break down starch. Whereas high protein is going to take up water a lot more slower, and it's going to be harder to modify. So then the next one we have is the free amino nitrogen or FAN. And that Mm -hmm. is going to be um, a measure of amino acids, which are proteins. So they're the smallest protein factions, and it's going to indicate your protein modification. So protein modification is going to be, just like Rachel said, the amount of like broken down proteins that have happened in that barley kernel. And we need sufficient fan for healthy yeast growth and fermentation, but excessive quantities can have negative effects on beer quality. So when we were talking in our barley and malt episode previously about using six row, Barley that was extremely high protein, so there was too much fan, and that was part of the reason why brewer started using rice and corn to help dilute that because those don't have that enzymatic activity uh, in there, they don't have the same kind of protein level so they were kind of you know, using that to cut that and that's because that 6 old barley was so high in protein that there was too much fan. And that can be, a, that's going to be harmful to yeast growth. And then an all malt wort is going to have typically enough
1: fan, but up to a certain gravity level. You right. will, if you're doing high gravity brewing, about 18 Plato, I remember. But um, so you will need, and you can add more fan. Like it typically mm-hmm. comes in the form of a nutrient that you would add yeah. in like your whirlpool addition. So yep. I always sterilized. add. Sterilized.
0: Yeah. I add a, a yeast nutrient
1: mm-hmm. to, to all. of them. highly my- recommend, even if you are doing regular beer, it can still help. It won't necessarily right. hurt, but you can do too much fan as you right. had
0: mentioned. So, um, like we mentioned insufficient fan, so less than 150 milligrams per liter is going to lead to poor yeast growth, slow or incomplete fermentations. Um, if you're doing, adjunct or high-gravity brewing, then you do need high fan levels because you're, you need those enzymes to help everything else, all the adjuncts that you're putting in there. You need more of
1: everything. You need more yeast. You need more right. oxygen. This yes. Part of, part of the bucket.
0: Right. With pH, your grain pH is going to drop during malting, and that can also be used as a measure of modification. But again... All of these things are giving you the complete story, right? You can't just look at the pH and be like, okay, I get everything about this beer. Yeah, Each one of these is kind of giving you a different piece of the information and none of them really stand on their own. So for pale malts, you want the pH values to be between 5.92 and 5.99 levels above or below that can indicate under or over modification. Uh, So if you have a lower pH, that's going to indicate germination problems, such as there was poor airflow or there were dead kernels. And germination problems lead to grain spoilage, mold growth and subsequent lactobacillus production. But again, like by the time you've gotten to the pH on your certificate of analysis, it's like you already know that you might be dealing with something out of the ordinary you know, again, like that's when to just give you another piece of the puzzle. So then, the next thing we'll talk about is carbohydrate enzymes. Um, so those on a certificate of analysis are going to measure your alpha amylase, and they're going to measure your diastatic power. Uh, so Rachel, will you tell us about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both of those?
1: Yeah. So the alpha amylase enzyme is measures the quantity of the alpha-amylase enzyme only, and it breaks. this breaks open the chains of the amylose and the amylopeptin to form dextrins. So less than eight, uh, I, I'm about to say AA, alpha-amylase will also might say AA on the on the COA, that's just a short name for it, AA, but I'm not to be confused with alpha-acid. Uh, side story, I... <laughs> was like when i was a young buck you know like 19 years old working at this beer bar they would have like beer classes and i remember maybe like when i was studying for advanced cicero finding some notes from this beer class and they were talking about alpha amylase in this note alpha and beta in like malting but they wrote alpha acid and beta acid and i just remember being like what the fuck oh they just fucked up the words. Like, we're all just <laughs> learning, right? Like, right. <laughs> funny enough. But anyways, the alpha amylase breaks open chains, Um, like Ed mentioned, to form dextrins, which is one of the first reactions of the mash. And this happens at a little bit warmer of a mash temperature. Uh, and I say that there's not a huge difference. I mean, around 154, 155 degrees Fahrenheit versus maybe like 148, 145 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you have diastatic power. Um, This is the measure of the total starch degrading power of the malt. And it's basically saying, does this malt have enough power to to convert all the sugars needed in this mash? So like if you are using adjunct, does this malt have enough power to take care of all the converting for that adjunct as well? Um, And this heavily influenced on the variety and protein content of the grain. It's expressed in degrees litner, which is like a degree sign with the capital l um so if you see
0: much like Levibond,
1: yes, yeah, <laughs> not to be confused with levibond, I think a uh like a a lot of base malts will measure like as high as like one eighty levabon I'm sorry <laughs> Littner, but only around forty Lintners needed to converse the mash to work um so typically like your higher numbers, anything above. 120 i mean it's all going to be good stuff malts with high diastatic power are sometimes called hotter and can be like difficult difficult to control when used in all malt mash diastatic power measures alpha and beta amylase limit to dextrinase and several other enzymes where alpha amylase is just a measure measure of itself the alpha amylase um Higher levels of these enzymes can indicate a high degree of modification, but lower levels can be indicative of denaturing from higher temperature kilning. Um, where alpha amylase is fairly heat stable, beta amylase is heat sensitive and can be denatured during high kilning, especially early in kilning when malt moisture is high. Um, so like that's why you see the higher kiln malts have less of this DP because you have less beta amylase and all that is a measure of DP. Um, and that's why your lower kiln malts make for better base malts, not to say you can't use a higher kiln malt for a base malt, but typically, um, you, you do better. Is it right to say you get better, more conversion using a base malt? When I say a high kiln malt, I mean, something like Munich,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? My problem with using a Munich 100% malt is the amount of melanoids that it contains. Um, specifically, as it would convert into hot side aeration, because that's the way my brewing vessel is set up. So it'd be fair to say that you get more um, fermentable. Sh- well, it's not really, f- it's not really fermentable sugars, but more conversion from a base malt versus a high kiln malt. Even though technically high kiln malt can be a base malt or used as a base malt.
0: I said again, sorry. <laughs>
1: so like, I should. I should probably just like go look all this up, but like, is there, do you think the North American base malts, do you know what the DP of like a Munich malt would be off the top of your head?
0: Um, I don't, but I think it would be at the high end of the North American base malts because Munich it can be a base malt or Munich is a base malt. It's a high kiln base malt.
1: Yeah. I guess what I'm asking is what is the pro or con of using a high kiln for a base malt versus a low kiln?
0: I think that would probably be the color and the flavor.
1: Just that. But Mm -hmm. diastatic power probably isn't it? Yeah, no. Okay. That's what I was getting stuck around and I needed you help.
0: Yeah, with diastatic (laughs) power, um, a lower, it would have pale malts will have a lower DP because they haven't been kilned as long.
1: Got it. Okay.
0: So it's got, still got all of the enzymes in it that haven't been denatured. All right. So around anywhere
1: from around 80 to pale malt can have lower levels of DP from 80 to 100 litanier. Um, adjunct, adjunct brewing requires higher levels, uh, around 150 to 180 uh, degrees litner, And grain distilling requires very high levels.
0: Um Yes, because you need all of those enzymes, um, all of those um, amylases to be able to make make your liquor. So that's also why you'll see a lot of maltsters will make distiller's malt. Um, and that's usually, all, not usually, another reason why you can have distiller's malt is because a lot of the um, the other qualities in barley and malt that you would be concerned about for brewing, you don't need to be concerned about for... Um, uh, distilling. So that way, you can like, if you have something that's a little high, um, in you know, with a like a high in DP, like you can make it a distiller's malt rather mm. than trying to make it a base malt for a brewer. And I guess
1: if you, on the flip side, were a maltster and something went wrong and you got too high DP, that would probably be good for distilling.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You could switch up. Like, yeah, I got you. Right. Um, cool. Thank you for taking me down that. Education road.
0: <laughs> yes. So the next one we'll talk about is the carbohydrate extract, and that's going to include your fine grind dry basis, your coarse grind as is, your moisture, your total protein, and your assortment. So as, as we're, you know, the, the the CBC presentation talks about like I said, does a really good job of like kind of putting these in a different order than Hertrix does, which is that's what these mm-hmm. what we're talking about today is like his five buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to change dramatically. Like the information on the COA is still telling you the same information. But kind of as we're going farther down, this is where it's like, okay, now we're getting more into like the finer details of things because we've already talked through. We know what our modification is. We know what our friability is. We know, you know, likely what our extract is going to be. So our fine grind dry basis, that's going to be the value when moisture has been factored out of the, out of the um, finished malt. So that's also FGDB. I don't think that's easier to say than fine grind dry basis, but it's used by some brewers to compare potential extract between multiple lots because it's going to indicate homogenous malt or lack thereof and who's you know is somebody really using this probably not this might be a very important factor if you're using craft malt yeah it's like, each it, one of your lots might be slightly different
1: it like resembles the maximum theoretical yield that could happen in like a lab setting mm-hmm. it's not right. indicative of what could happen in your brewery for sure
0: Right. So you want that um, that basis to be as low as possible. So it's usually going to be like 0.5 to 1.5 percent, but lower is always better. Um, And then you're going to have the coarse grind as is. And your coarse grind as is includes that malt moisture. So that's going to represent your predicted extract yield for malt when used in a normal brew house situation and the percentage of soluble carbohydrates, which is your extract, which are responsible for the flavor and alcohol in beer will decrease as any of the following increase. So insoluble substances such as the husk and the spent grain, um, water and protein. So as as you have more moisture in your malt, as you have more protein in your malt, your uh, your soluble carbohydrates are going to decrease, which, again, like a lot of the stuff we're saying, we're just saying it in different ways. We just keep saying Mm -hmm. this kind of the same thing over and over uh, and then the next one we're going to have is moisture. So proper moisture levels are important because low mo- moisture malt is more susceptible to breakage and in, in, while you're handling it. But on the flip side, high moisture malt can go slack and spoil quicker in storage. Uh, so your uh, I, this is another important consideration too, is your moisture percentage has financial implications, right? Because the, the weight of the moisture adds to the final weight that can dictate malt prices. So it's kind of like having your film on this scale as you're yeah, measuring things because yeah. you have your you've got the same amount of malt, but it's got more moisture in it. So yeah. it's going to be heavier. Um, and then your total protein. So we've talked about protein a lot, but it will tell you what your total protein is. And then your assortment is going to indicate the homogeneity of the barley used to make the malt. So you really want it to be greater than 90%, right? So you want you want all of your malt kernels to be about the same size. You don't want a, a lot of different sizes because then that's not going to fit through your mill properly. And it's not, you know, and then that's just going to like set you up for, it's just kind of, you know, like we said before, everything depends on everything else. So. If you've got a, an assortment that is all over the place, it you're not it's not going to mill well, you're not going to get that extract. The um, so the size measurement is I like this because it in my nose I have it as it's using a shaking device equipped with successively tighter screens. So again, those are the sieves that we've talked mm-hmm. about. Um, but I love that it's called a shaking device because <laughs> what you do is you just put this in here and you just slide it back and forth on yeah. a counter for like two minutes. Um, to get what this assortment is to get this measurement. So it's like it's a device the same way like a cat batting around a toy is a device. (laughs) Um, But your, you know, your large plump kernels are going to remain on the top screen while the thinner ones are going to drop through the tighter screens. Plump kernels have a higher ratio of endosperm and produce better results for the brewer. Uh, And that, again, if we go back to thinking about two row and six row barley, that's why two row became more popular is because they're going to be plumper. You have bigger kernels, so you have more endosperm packed into those kernels. Uh, So on a COA, it can show up uh, in two ways. It can be reported as muley, halfy, glassy percentage. So that's going to be your base malt, half and caramel malt. So that is also kind of going back up to our friability the all glassy and half glassy. Um, and then it, again, it can be reported as plumps. And so those are going to be the kernels that pass through the 764th and the 664th in your sieve. So you want you don't want anything lower than that 664th. So then the very last thing we have to talk about is color and flavor. And these are kind of the last ones because I think they're a little more nebulous than some of the other ones. Um, But our maillard reactions are going to be what drives our color and flavor development simultaneously so in some cases darker colors are going to indicate a more malty flavor Mm -hmm. Um, and those are going to be derived from the simple sugars and broken down starch from your fan and protein from water and from the energy so the energy that's present in the kernel or applied through the malting process and steeping is important, so that very first step in malting. Uh, steeping is important for flavor because color increases as moisture increases, um, which you know it makes sense if you're thinking about um, cooking, right? And how cooking reactions work. And then malt color is reported in SRM or EBC, and SRM is based on the Lovibond scale and is determined from a Congress ma- Congress mash wart analysis, which if you ever have the chance to Congress Congress Mash, it's just a really fun looking device. It looks kind of like a whack-a-mole, um, but you don't. They they get really mad when you like pop the the Congress wart, uh, the Congress mash machine. <laughs> when we're looking at malt modification, kind of tying this all together, when we have lower modified malts, are going to have lower free amino nitrogen due to less solubilization of the protein. You're going to have reduced color formation for lower modified malts because your free amino nitrogen is a driver of the of the Maillard reaction. You're going to have increased foam potential because you have more proteins available. You're going to have increased beta glucan because um, because of that lower modification on your malt. Uh, So that means you're going to have slower wart separation and an increased mouthfeel. And then for higher modified malts, you're going to have higher free amino nitrogen, which means you're going to have increased color formation, decreased foam potential and decreased beta glucans. So that's, we've talked about this a lot and I think we talked about it in our mash episode specifically of a lot of times it's brewing is two steps forward one step back and it's, you know, it's a a series of trade offs and compromises to reach your finished product. And that's definitely the the case with, with malt. And if you're using lower modified malts or higher modified malts, you're going to get different results um, in your finished beer. That's a lot. It's a lot to take
1: in. And yeah. it, can, <laughs> it can be a lot of information. And you know, if you just want a couple things, like my recommendation, let's say like I like to use Beersmith to manage my recipes. And if I need to go add in a new malt. The couple things that really stand out for me, and I am just taking a second to bring one up, you know, is like your moisture, your DP, your protein, your coarse fine difference, and your color. These are going to be some of the things that you'll pull from immediately, that you'll immediately go to look for if you're adding like a new malt into your uh, beer program,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which If you're using any of these online or, you know, computer beer programs that are preset and all that, they have a lot of good malts in there, but they don't have everything. Same with hops. Mm -hmm. So it's important to take a look at that stuff and try to match, just look at the COA, match things up. If you don't know where to get your COA, just ask the the person at the homebrew store, whoever sold you your malt, they'll know how to get it.
0: Yeah. And usually, with especially with stuff like RAR and Brees, like the bigger manufacturers, you can go to their website. Yeah. And they'll have like, this is our Vienna. Yeah.
1: COA, you know. Sometimes and- they like it could, like I know for Malt Europe, there might be a broad thing I could go look. I'm not sure, but I have to like find the batch information and I send in, the, I put in the batch information. It gives me specific for that batch,
0: which I love. Yeah, uh, that's the best case scenario yeah, though, is that's you've got the best more case transparency.
1: Yeah. So sometimes uh, you'll get like a QR code on the bag, but if you're mm-hmm. not buying a whole bag, you might not have access to it. So there's right. ways to get it. If you want it, you can get it.
0: Yeah. And I think that you know what we said at the beginning, go like go to the Brees website or go to malt Europe mm-hmm. or someplace and find one of their COAs and print it out and tell yourself the story of what this malt is and how you mm-hmm. would use it or what this means. Um, and i i did that with the the malt cup this year with judging we did the second round of judging as well as the first round and i was doing the judging with people who didn't have as much experience with the coa as i had but part of the second the second round of judging you had the coa and you had the hot steep so you were evaluating the flavor and the color you know in real life but then you also had the the COA that's going to tell you, again, tell you some of the specifics. So the point of having that is, yes, you want to make it to make sure that it's going to taste good. But if it's not performing, why would you use it? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I had to I took the COA for each one of the entries that we had and said, like, here's the range that you would normally want. And here's what this means. And that's, you know, rather than just handing out a see, you know, just a a chart of COA information to everybody I like and I didn't. I was looking at it was like, okay, like I know what this means and I remembered that this should be this, but I can't tell you a cohesive story. So it was a great exercise for me as well just to go in and notate everything and say, this is why you would want it to be in this range or as a brewer, this is why you would find this important. So I, I think that's a really good exercise for for anybody is to just find a find a Malt Certificate of Analysis. And, and write the information on there and see what kinds of questions you have mm-hmm. as you're writing it and, you know, and then going to find the answer to those questions. But yeah, so that wraps up our um, certificate of analysis. That was a very dense technical episode. You can find us at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can send us an email, falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. Um, we also have a Patreon that we don't mention nearly <laughs> nearly as much as we used to, but we do have a Patreon you can join for access to monthly bonus episodes and some other things. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you Rachel yes. for joining us. Thank, thank you, you to Jen. your to your pets for providing uh, entertainment in the background. They left me just yeah. just the cat now.
1: <laughs> Cats like got my spot back finally. <laughs>
0: This has been False Bottom Girls, and we make the Bruin world go round.